there was nobody home or there were no lights on except for a blue light in the basement window. And can you describe what you saw about the house at that time that was different than how it usually was? There was something on the dishwasher. When you say something on the dishwasher? It looked like blood. And the front hall had hundreds of rolls of toilet paper. Had you ever seen toilet paper no, like that no, before? No, no. And then the following week it wasn't there. Kathy said that she was very frightened because she thought that her husband might hurt her. I don't get along with people easily. Most people don't get along with me at all. Not outgoing, shy. That's my father. Seymour made me feel very guilty for, in essence, refuting him, repudiating him. And he said, you're doing this to me. The only reason you're not taking over the business is because of the way you feel about me. And he would always bring up that it was not his fault that my mother had died. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This week, we'll begin our deep dive into aspects of Robert Durst's life that even those who've been following the case closely may not know. Much of this information will come from the words of Robert Durst himself, as read by actor David Kelsey. But first, we're going to bring you the latest updates from the courtroom. Since the prosecution's case rests on the allegation that Susan Berman helped Durst cover up Kathy's murder and later threatened to talk to authorities, thereby giving Durst a motive to kill Berman, the jury has heard from a number of witnesses in the last two weeks who have testified to key pieces of evidence surrounding Kathy's disappearance. In our episode last week, we covered the grueling eight-hour video testimony of Detective Michael Strzok, who was in charge of the 1982 investigation into Kathy's disappearance. Much of what you will hear in this update relates to evidence presented by the prosecution from the immediate aftermath of Kathy's disappearance that they argue suggests Robert Durst knew far more about his wife's whereabouts than he let on at the time. We will be back with all of that after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. After NYPD Detective Mike Strzok's testimony finished playing, the jury also heard videotape testimony from New York State Trooper James Harney, who, like Detective Strzok, visited Robert Durst's home in South Salem, but failed to conduct a thorough search. Here he is, questioned by Prosecutor Habib Balian. Did you look around the inside of the house when you went inside? As uh, any trooper would, we look around. Okay. Did you look into every room in the house? I don't believe we did. In other words, when you got into the bedroom? I don't know if we did. If he took us into the bedroom, I don't believe so. Um, 
would you have gone into the basement? I don't believe we did. Did you look in drawers? I don't believe we did. Did you examine the knives in the home? I don't believe we did. Did you execute a search warrant at the house? I don't believe, well, we did not. The limited scope of the searches of the Durst South Salem Cottage by both New York State Police and the NYPD is especially perplexing given the numerous pieces of evidence pointing authorities to the possibility that Kathy Durst might have been killed there. Soon after Kathy's disappearance, investigators interviewed the Durst's next-door neighbors, Ruth and Bill Mayer, and learned that Mrs. Mayer witnessed something unusual for two nights following Kathy's disappearance. Ruth Mayer testified to this strange sighting. In the days or days following Kathy's disappearance, did you notice anything out of the ordinary at the Durst Register? Uh, yes, there was nobody home, um, or there were no lights on, except for a blue light in the basement window. It was odd. <laughs> How do you get into the basement? There was a trap door, or you know, you pick up the floorboards in uh, the hall, sort of the hall living room area, and yeah. there was a staircase. Her then husband, Bill Mayer, testified that she informed him of this sighting right away. Did your wife, Ruth Mayer, did she ever mention to you that she had seen a blue light coming from the Durst basement? on the night of January 31st, as well as the next day, February 1st? Yes, she did. Can you tell me, to the best of your memory, when did she tell you that? I would say she told me that almost immediately after she saw it. Defense attorney David Chesnoff tried to push back on the notion that this blue basement light was significant. As far as you're concerned, you have no idea what the significance of a blue light is, do you? Because you never saw it. I did not see the blue light. But I must say, my ex-wife said she saw, saw it, it. Yeah. and was very clear about seeing it. Okay. But other than her saying she saw a blue light, you didn't see it, and no. there was nothing exceptional exceptional about a blue light other than your wife said she saw a blue light, right? Well, it would be unusual to see a blue light, but the answer is I didn't see it. Well, if they make blue lights, somebody must use them, right? So it's not unusual, is it? I, I don't see blue lights that often, but okay. Thank you. The prosecution then presented witness testimony regarding irregularities inside the Durst house in South Salem. The jury heard from Elizabeth Jones, the woman who cleaned the Durst cottage every week in the early 80s. How and when did you become aware that Kathy Durst had allegedly disappeared? I was at the house, Bob's house and two officers came to the door. Can you describe what happened? Well, they held up the newspaper and they asked me if I noticed anything out of place. And can you describe what you saw about the house at that time that was different than how it usually was? Um, there was something on the dishwasher. When you say something on the dishwasher? It looked like blood. I'm sorry? It looked like blood. And I want to ask you, is that something that um, appeared to you to be 
recent or fresh? Yes. Anything else that you saw? Um, yes, in the in the dining room, uh, there was I didn't know there was hidden panels above a closet, and I noticed fingerprints on them, and the panels were. And out. The, these panels, did you know previous to that that they were there and what they were? No, I did. I didn't know they were there. So, in looking at them you were able to see that there were hidden panels that you were unaware of because of how they were attached. They looked as if they'd been opened? Yes. Anything else you observed? I'm referring specifically to toilet paper. Yes, that was another time. I came in another day to clean and the front hall had hundreds of rolls of toilet paper. Had you ever seen toilet paper no, like that no, before? No, no. And then the following week it wasn't there. Even though Ms. Jones informed state troopers of her observations, they never attempted to obtain a search warrant. She also testified that several weeks after Kathy's disappearance, Robert Durst came to her with an odd request. After Kathy disappeared, was there an incident involving Bob Durst getting rid of Kathy's property? Yes, there was. Can you describe what happened? Uh, he gathered all her things together and told me to get rid of everything. And when you say all her things, do you remember what these things were? Um, dishes, sheets, sewing machine, clothing, not much of, of that. Dishware. It did also include her medical books. Oh, yes. And the condition of the things that he was getting rid of, what was their, in other words, were they junk or were they uh, in good condition? No, everything was in good condition. And what was your response when he asked you to get rid of it? I told him I would take care of it. Did you say, in fact, ma'am, quote, he throws everything out of Kathy's out, all her medical books, her sewing machine, her clothes. He tells me, just take everything and do a junk job. Just get it out of here. So I kind of felt like it was Christmas because I'm just going through the stuff. I can't believe he's throwing all this stuff out. Who would throw all this stuff out? He threw everything out. Does that actually address your response to being asked to get rid of all this stuff? Yes. Do you recall approximately how long that was after Kathy Durst disappeared? A couple of months. Meanwhile, in taped testimony... Karen Minatello, the manager of the Manhattan apartment building on East 86th Street, which was Kathy's primary residence, answered questions by Prosecutor Eugene Miata about a similar situation regarding Kathy's personal belongings. So I went down into the basement, into the compact room, and the porters were pulling out clothes, books, personal possessions, uh, that were jamming up and broke the machine. And did you make an attempt to, to try to identify whose belongings those might have been in the trash compactor? Yeah, I picked up a book. Okay. What, what type of book? I think, like it was a notebook? A no I think it was a notebook or a textbook. Okay, and what did that tell you? It had Kathy's name in it. Kathy Durst? Yes. This incident occurred shortly after Kathy Durst disappeared and just a couple of weeks after Karen received a distressing phone call from Kathy. It was significant because she was asking if there was a vacant apartment in the building. And she was uh, hesitant in, uh, when I was asking more questions. She was asking me for another apartment in the building. 
because she didn't want to live with Robert anymore. Karen Minatella was not the only person in whom Kathy confided. The jury was played testimony from Peter Halpern, a medical student in Kathy's graduating class at Einstein College of Medicine, who was questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin about a troubling incident with Kathy in late 1981. And can you describe what happened uh, that day? We were uh, having sort of a conference with the, uh, the radiology attending and uh, doing, you know, sort of uh, questions and answers. And he asked her a question. And um, she didn't answer, but she looked extremely anxious and frightened. And he, he asked her, you know, kind of why can you answer the question? And she was so frightened looking that I, I sort of said out loud, can you see, or I think she's kind of upset or anxious. Um, and then after the uh, uh, session broke up, I just went over to her and I said, are, are you okay? You seem very upset. Can you describe what Kathy Durr's demeanor was at the time that you had this conversation? I want to start with her demeanor during the incident. She appeared extremely frightened, way more than somebody would ordinarily appear sitting in a, in a class. She, she appeared very frightened. Have you used the word petrified to describe Kathy Durst's demeanor? I did use that word. She did appear petrified. She didn't respond at all. She didn't answer the question. She sort of looked frozen and very anxious. Later that night, Halpern received a phone call from Kathy in which she revealed to him the cause of her anxiety. Shortly thereafter, did you receive a phone call from Kathy Durst? That evening. When she called, can you please describe what her demeanor was on the phone? She was very upset. What did Kathy say to you? Kathy said that she was very frightened because she thought that her husband might hurt her. And did she say those words to you? Yes, she did. She said that there were problems in the marriage, and that things had escalated to the point that she felt unsafe. She said that her husband was capable of violence and told a story to support that in which she said that uh, a friend of hers had been visiting uh, their apartment and that um, when her husband came home, he was very upset that this man was in the apartment and physically assaulted that man, including kicking him in the head. And she just said that she was extremely frightened that maybe something would happen to her. At this point in time, Dr. Halpern, would you have called Kathy Durst a, a close friend? Absolutely not. Would you even have called her more of a friend or an acquaintance? An acquaintance. When she told you this, what, how did you respond to her? What did you tell her? I immediately said, you really should leave and get out of this situation. I'm very concerned that uh, uh, you're, you're at a risk. Um, why don't you just leave? Do you recall when you said that to her, did she agree to 
immediately leave the situation? No, she did not. She said that she felt that she would be jeopardizing settlement in divorce hearings financially if she were to leave. At that point in time, did you make Kathy an offer? I did. I repeated that I felt that she should extract herself from the situation, and I invited her to stay with my wife and I that night if she needed a place. And did you make that offer more than once? A couple of times, yeah. And what was Kathy's response to that offer? No. No, thank you. And did Kathy end up coming over that night? No, she did not. Did you ever see Kathy again after that night? No, I did not. Because Detective Strzok and the NYPD decided not to question many potential witnesses back in 1982, their investigation hit a dead end. Back in South Salem, however, one of Kathy's close friends, Gilberta Najami, was conducting an unofficial investigation of her own. As Gilberta is now deceased, Deputy DA Habib Balian called her sister, Fadwa Najami, to the stand. How did this affect Gilberta's life? The disappearance. Emotionally, it tore her apart. She was a very loyal friend, and she felt that no one else was giving a care whether or not Kathy was found. Do you know of any person on this earth who was more concerned with being an advocate for finding Kathy Durst other than your sister, Gilberta? At that point in time, no. Do you know of anyone who was a stronger voice to law enforcement at that time in trying to find Kathy Durst? At that time, no. If I were to ask you, who would have been the biggest witness, as far as the police could have been concerned, about trying to establish what happened to Kathy Durst, who would you say? Gilberta. Here's Elizabeth Jones, who cleaned the Durst cottage in the early 80s, once again under questioning by John Lewin, testifying to how she assisted Gilberta in her investigation. I want to ask you, ma'am, when I say the name Gilberta Najami, is that a name that you recognize? Yes, I do. And when you say you recognize that name, who did you know Gilberta Najami to be? Uh, Kathy's best friend. And did Gilberta Najami contact you, or did you contact her after Kathy's disappearance? She had contacted me. And did she have a request for you? Yes. And what was that request? She asked me to um, save the garbage from from Bob's house. And did she, did you actually, in fact, save the garbage from Bob's house? Yes, I did. I would bring it to my house, and she would pick it up. Did she tell you why she wanted you to save that garbage? Uh, yes, she was suspicious of Bob. And were there items that you removed from the home, from the trash, and ended up leaving for Gilberta to pick up from you? Yes. Was one of those items what has been referred to previously as the itinerary? Yes. Ma'am, do you recognize this document? Yes. And is that a document that you recovered from Bob Durst's house? Yes. And. Do you recall, as you sit here, specifically where you recovered it? From the garbage. 
And did you recover it um, near the time that Kathy disappeared? In other words, was this recovered in 1982? Yes. The piece of paper referred to as the itinerary is a list of days and places written in Robert Durst's handwriting detailing his whereabouts on the days surrounding Kathy's disappearance. While the prosecution suggests that this list could have been fabricated, the defense offers an alternative explanation. Were you aware that Mr. Durst was asked by the police in New York City to reconstruct where he had been on the days following Kathy Durst's disappearance? No. Does it appear to you to be a list of places where he was uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I can't tell what that other one's. That's going to call for speculation. Sustained. We will stipulate that this is a an itinerary written by Bob Durst after his interactions with the police where he made out a list. No, wait a minute. <laughs> he just what, said to stipulate it's his writing. It's plainly his writing. Okay. Okay. The court accepts that stipulation. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must accept it too. It's written by Robert Durst after he contacted the police. Makes sense that a police officer investigating her disappearance would want to know where Mr. Durst was or said he was after she disappeared. Yes. Okay. Those are some of the key moments so far from the prosecution's presentation of evidence that they allege will show that Robert Durst had a hand in his wife Kathy's disappearance on January 31, 1982. Again, remember that although Durst is on trial for Susan Berman's murder, not Kathy's, the people of California claim that it was Susan's assistance in Durst's alleged cover-up of that murder that ultimately led to Berman's demise. There is much more to come on this aspect of the case, and we'll continue to bring you the latest trial updates as they develop. For now, we're going to transition into a special immersive new miniseries as part of our coverage of this story. That's coming up right after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. At the outset of Robert Durst's trial for the murder of Susan Berman, Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney John Lewin asserted that in order to understand the crimes that have followed Durst throughout his life, we need to understand how Bob sees himself. It's in Bob's self-narrative that we can find the roots of his behavior towards others, the softer moments of friendship and reflection, as well as the detached cruelty. Robert Durst's commentary on the record is extensive, from interviews with filmmakers and law enforcement to his own writing and courtroom testimony. Bob has left a lot of clues of how he constructs and inhabits his worldview. By taking a deep dive into these sources and reconstructing his singular vision of his role in society and what he believes society owes him in return, we aim to paint a fuller picture of the man on trial for murder a second time. What you are about to hear is an assembled oral history of Robert Durst on 
well, Robert Durst. We've combed the public record to better understand how Bob used his relationship to his family, lightly edited them for clarity, and assembled them for you in a narrative form. I'll be offering insight and context along the way as actor David Kelsey portrays Robert Durst in his own words. I don't get along with people easily. Most people don't get along with me at all. Not outgoing, shy. That's my father. Seymour made me feel very guilty for, in essence, refuting him, repudiating him. And he said, you're doing this to me. The only reason you're not taking over the business is because of the way you feel about me. And he would always bring up that it was not his fault that my mother had died. Although he knew that I thought it was partly, at least. She died a violent death. She fell or jumped off the roof of our house. After my mother died, I was sent to psychiatrists, lots of them, for two or three years. And he knew why I... I felt that he was partly responsible. I strongly believe he was having an affair. He came home to Scarsdale, New York, infrequently at night. When he did come home, he'd stay for dinner, but he'd be gone by breakfast. And my mother was sick. Severe, acute asthma. She was not supposed to have children, but she went and had four of them and a minimum of one abortion. And every time she went and got pregnant, she would have an asthma attack. And this was way before antihistamines. The only medicine for it was a heavy duty upper of some sort, and she would have to inhale. Doctors wanted her in the hospital in an oxygen tent, and she didn't want to. My father went along with her. Well, I'll take care of her. And that didn't happen. And uh, the problem with asthma is it, it clogs the nasal passages. And we all know how that feels. You know, you have a cold, you can't breathe, you're having difficulty sleeping, and you wake up in the morning, your mouth is all dry. You know, after weeks of that, she would take the medicine. And that would open up the nasal passages, but it was also as a heavy-duty upper. So now she can breathe real good, but... She's wide awake and can't sleep. The loss of his mother, Bernice, in front of him at the age of seven is a foundational trauma in the life of Robert Durst and something that his defense points to as the source of much of his familial strife. The estrangement from his father, Seymour, whom Bob visited on his deathbed but whose funeral Bob did not attend, is often attributed largely to a conflict over the family business and sizable trust. It's clear from his retelling, however, that Bob saw his father not as someone hurt by the loss of Bernice, but as a key factor in her death. My family has been in New York for since not long after the Civil War, really. And we had the land in Midtown, Times Square area, which was once upon a time a farm. And as the area developed, we kept owning the land and would build, you know, whatever was the appropriate kind of building on it. Initially, houses and then apartment buildings and eventually office buildings. It was the same then as now, except that there was a whole lot more land and now there's a whole lot more of office buildings. We were always one of the top five or six owners of property in Manhattan. 
My dad in the 60s, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, before I was in the business or knew that much about it, decided that east of 6th Avenue in New York City was pretty full. When development continues, and it slowed down seemingly then, it would move west of 6th Avenue to 6th to 7th Avenue, which was adjacent to Times Square in the 40s. And the neighborhood had been going downhill since the 50s, and by the time it got to the late 60s, was full of these old dilapidated hotels that had been turned into welfare hotels or SROs or whatever they were referred to at the time. And he went over there and, and bought and bought and bought and, and bought and put debt on the company and sold everything on the east side that he had not developed into an office building and then waited for development. And that was in the 70s in New York. And development completely went away. Property values plummeted. The city defaulted on its debt in 1976 and things got worse and worse and worse. And he felt it was the city's fault and they had given him no alternative but to lose money on these properties year in, year out, or to rent them to the people that wanted them, which was the peep shows and the massage parlors and that. Joseph Durst, Bob Durst's grandfather, immigrated to America from Austria-Hungary in 1902 and purchased his first building at 1 West 34th Street in 1915. The definition of not long after the Civil War notwithstanding, Bob's painting a reasonably accurate picture of the arc of New York City real estate in the early to mid 20th century. The Durst family properties are owned by trusts, which were set up in the late 30s or early 40s. And each individual's interest gets passed on to them and their wife, their children, like that. So each year, the income is distributed. And it was always far more income than I could spend. When I was 21, there was a large bank account of accumulated money since I was born. I'm a millionaire. I don't have to work. I get up most mornings to smoke pot. I've been smoking pot every day of my life for as long as I can remember. I didn't have to follow the rule. There's no line. You get to the end of the line, I'm thinking, I'm not going to get to the end of the line. I got other things I want to do. Waiting in line. I'm at the airport right now. And it's 20 feet to the cashier. Fuck it. I'm going to take the water and leave. I shoplifted since I was a little kid, so it was nothing new. My siblings are not like that. I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. Several years between my brother younger than I, and I guess four years between my sister and seven between my youngest brother. I never was close to my siblings, any of them. We were never sociable together. We never did things together. There is one point upon which all the Durst siblings seem to agree. They are not a close bunch and, to quote Thomas Durst, have nothing in common. Though it's easy to say families are complicated, the Durst seem to have struggled with the one-two punch of Bernice's death and Seymour's ambition. There is a striking image of the four Durst siblings as children that Robert Durst's defense team showed as part of their opening statement. 
Three of the children, Douglas, Thomas, and Wendy, are seated on the floor, eyes downcast, not playing or interacting with each other. Robert stands in the back, apart from his siblings, inspecting a large paper in front of what looks like a building made of paper. The defense painted this photo as a happy image of the Durst siblings. They all look fairly miserable. In his testimony for the prosecution, Thomas Durst, Bob's youngest brother, detailed how Seymour Durst had constructed a model from plastic caps and cigar tubes and then, quote, sold the story to the New York Times as though the children had made it, but he made the whole thing, end quote. Though Bob appears to have kept more cordial relations with his sister Wendy, phone calls here and there, his interactions with brothers Douglas and Thomas have been at times fraught and violent. Robert Durst has confirmed his hatred for his brother Douglas, both in the documentary series The Jinx, as well as in subsequent interviews with the Los Angeles DA's office. Thomas, who testified against his brother in his current murder trial, spoke of his own fear of Bob's violent tendencies. As Bob and Kathy's marriage was collapsing, Kathy approached Thomas for financial support. He offered Kathy what cash he had on him, but said he would not write her a check as he was afraid for his own physical safety if Bob were to find a check made out to Kathy with Thomas's name on it. If not wholly remorseful for his actions, Bob is at times capable of meaningful reflection about the struggles that shaped him. I had always sort of had an eating disorder from when I was a little boy. Well, now it's called bulimia. Robert Durst's claim that he has an eating disorder surfaced in his trial for the murder of his friend and neighbor Morris Black in Galveston, Texas. Bob was acquitted of that crime. Later in life, while attempting rehab at the Betty Ford Clinic, Bob would tie his use of marijuana to his bulimia, saying the weed helped the eating disorder. I have always been talking to myself. I can remember it from elementary school. I had great, elaborate conversations with myself, wave my hands and talk out loud. People could hear me 23 feet away. Frequently, I've had people confront me and say, well, if you want to say something to me, then say something to me. Because I would just sort of look straight ahead and people will think I'm staring at them and waving my hands and making facial expressions and talking to them. This habit of Bob talking to himself at volume most famously came to bear in the conclusion of the jinx, when Bob coaches himself through what appears to be a confession to the alleged murders of three people. It was also the source of some conflict during his time in Texas, as Morris Black attempted to shove a man off a seawall for responding aggressively to Bob's self-talk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll continue our deep dive into Robert Durst's self-narrative next week. But before we close out today's episode, I'd like to review the developments in the trial over the past 10 days, with my co-host Brittany Bookbinder and with reporter Charles Bagley, who is covering the Durst trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, now that we've seen Robert Durst back in court, what are your thoughts about the state of his health? Well, there's no question that that 
Bob's health has declined over the years. He's sort of a shrunken body since I've first seen him when he was very healthy and testifying in Galveston. But the thing that I continue to focus on is how alert he is. He's got a yellow legal pad in front of him in the courtroom. He's writing notes. He gives the notes to his lawyer. Uh, the other day, he gave him a note at the start of testimony by a particular witness, and then in the middle of the testimony. He turns around during the breaks and scans the audience, waved hello to me. So the mind is still at work, even as the body decays. And in the past 10 days or so, we've seen a lot of testimony about the investigation in 1982. What struck you about the impact of that testimony? Who in particular did you think was effective and who did you think was particularly ineffective? I thought most of the witnesses were sort of setting the stage for what happened on the fateful night that Kathy disappeared. I mean, the first thing that we know is that uh, Bob was angry and demanded that Kathy come home. And Kathy was angry about the state of their relationship and her position within this deteriorating marriage. I mean, you have Harney talking about how Bob didn't seem phased. He wasn't emotional. And I think Jones, the housekeeper, gave a similar appreciation of where Bob was at immediately after Kathy's disappearance. I was particularly struck by the testimony of both Elizabeth Jones and Karen Minatello. Both of them testified very similarly that Robert Durst was throwing away Kathy's stuff very soon after her disappearance. Brittany, what did you make of that when you heard that testimony? Yeah, it sounded pretty damning to me. In at least one case, I believe Elizabeth Jones spoke to her own experience with her husband dying and saying, you know, it took her years to be able to do that. And obviously, everybody's different. And I, I don't want to place any judgment on anybody's grieving process, but just all the pieces line up to make it look like he really wanted to wash his hands of her in the entire situation. Uh, Charlie, Anything else that struck you about the last week or so of testimony? Well, I think Fadwa Najami, she was sort of stepping in for her sister who has since died. Her sister was very close to Kathy and went to some lengths after Kathy went missing to find out what happened. I mean, she went to the train station and questioned train riders about whether they were on the train that fateful Sunday night. She went through the garbage at the Durst house on Lake Truesdale. She was very active, but she's not here to speak up. So in that sense, Fabio, her sister, was a stand-in. And Brittany, anything else that stuck out to you in the past week? Yeah, I, you know, more than anything else, it, it just made me wish that we had a time machine to go back and search the South Salem house. When you think about what we do know, the blood on the dishwasher, the hidden panels in the dining room, the mysterious light coming from the basement, it, it sounds like all the ingredients for an Agatha Christie book. I mean, I guess there's a possibility that if state troopers didn't think they had to test that supposed blood stain, maybe it really was nothing. But taken on the whole, it, 
it paints a pretty dark picture. Well, thank you both for your continued contributions to this podcast. And I'm looking forward to talking to both of you about all of this in the weeks ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. This episode was written and co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. And it was edited by Jody O'Keefe. The words of Robert Durst were read by actor David Kelsey. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.